Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up those Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can use a blue pew Bible. You'd find Exodus 2 on page 46. So if you've been here for this series that we started the new year, you might be thinking, okay, we've seen that same sermon introduction each and every week. And I say yes, and you will keep seeing that sermon introduction each and every week because we're in the midst of a long series. This is going to take us, Lord willing, through July, maybe August. And what happens in a long series like this where you're walking through one book is that you can easily lose sight of the big picture um, in the midst of all these individual stories that make up Exodus. And and the thing about Exodus, even more than other books, is that a lot of well-known stories are in Exodus. That if you grew up in a church you've known from a kid, that you, you can kind of rattle them off. You have the burning bush, you have the plagues, the crossing of the sea, the golden calf, Moses on the mountaintop, the building of the tabernacle. And, and you can kind of, if we're not careful, start seeing those stories in kind of silos from one another and kind of disconnected stories. And what happens is when it's a disconnected story, you start just trying to take moral principles from it. What's a moral lesson I can apply to my life from the bush? from the plagues. And moral lessons aren't bad. We, we, we see them, we apply them each week, but they're secondary. If that's all we're doing in the book of Exodus, we are not going to get the, the meat of what we want from it. And the meat of what we want from Exodus is who is God? So that sermon bumper that AJ has put together, we will keep seeing that each and every week so that as we go into every story, We understand the big picture that we have a God whose power is unmatched in all of creation. That we have a God who is faithful to fulfill his promises, every single one of them. That one promise will go unfulfilled. And that we have a God who commits to be present with his people. That that when you think about 2020, what's Exodus have to do with 2020? This is the lasting impact. That that God who is put on display is the same God today. And we are even at a bigger advantage than the original audience of Israel who heard and and, and read the book of Exodus because we know that these stories point to the personal work of Jesus Christ, that every passage in Exodus is ultimately going to point to, be fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. And so we are on this side of the cross by God's grace. We know the full story. And so that um, sermon introduction, get used to it, memorize it. I'll just have you start saying it as it's going because that is something we need to keep seeing each and every Sunday. Um, But this morning... Our passage this morning is three verses. Will it translate to a shorter sermon? (laughs) Probably not. But it will be the shortest passage we will cover in the entire book of Exodus. Um, In fact, after this week, we will do no less than one chapter a week for the rest of the way. Uh, At certain points, we will start doing two chapters a week. But this morning, three verses. And the reason why is because these three verses are the thesis of the entire book of Exodus. Uh, We have spent, um, I think it's been four Sundays so far, kind of setting the stage for what happens. The introduction, the opening scenes, getting the context. Where are we? Who are the characters? What are we doing? And then just like at the end of an introduction paragraph and the essays you're writing in school, if you're in school, you end with a good thesis. This morning is the thesis of the book of Exodus So let's read it, Exodus 23, no, Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This morning, it's a simple sermon. And when you hear that, don't think basic, don't think unimportant, don't think elementary, because Exodus, as we will find, and I think in some ways we saw in the first couple chapters, but certainly as we get going, if you were to read ahead, you will know Exodus gets very complex very quickly. Um, you will read passages in Exodus where you'll, be, you'll rub your eyes and be like, did I just read that? Was that in the Bible? How did I never see that? That's what happens when you go click carefully through a book. That Exodus is a very complex book, but it's built upon a very simple foundation. And if we understand these three verses, it will provide a lens through which we will see the rest of the book of Exodus over the coming months. Um, So last week we saw in verse 11 that the story sped forward by 40 years from verse 10 to verse 11. Well that just happened again. From verse 22 to verse 23 when it says during those many days it spans another 40 years. So Moses spent 40 years in Egypt and then 40 years in Midian after he fled Egypt. There he got married, he's raising kids, he's shepherding his father-in-law's flock, got into the family business, he's assimilating to a new culture. All the while, God is preparing him, God is working in him, God is shaping him for his call. And we will come to this next week, but think about this. When Moses comes before the burning bush, the man was 80 years old. And all the while, God working, God preparing, God forming. When we see the movies and the tales of Moses, usually he's like a young adult at the burning bush, isn't he? Like, I'm pretty sure almost everybody in this room not qualified to be at the burning bush. There's a few of you out there. We won't make you raise your hands. The man was 80 years old when God first gave him his call. Think about that. But somewhere in the span of those 40 years that Moses was away, Pharaoh dies. The king of Egypt dies. And that's significant because it's going to set the stage for Moses to be able to go back and not be a fugitive. Um, In chapter 4, God will tell Moses, hey, you can go back because all the people who wanted you dead are dead. Like slightly comforting, all right, for Moses. Like now he can kind of enter back. Everybody who wanted him, his picture on the post office wall is gone. But the plight of the Hebrew people, still the same, still enslaved, and they corporately groan before the Lord, and they are crying out for help, and they wait. If you've picked up on the not-so-subtle theme from this morning, it's waiting. It's waiting. Waiting for something to happen. And they are powerless to change their circumstances. They are powerless to control this. Because why? They're slaves. They are owned. They are controlled. But if there's one thing that I just don't, like, again, when I'm preaching, sometimes I have to work hard to say, hey, guys, this applies to your life. This is why he applies. And I have to like, do some work to try and get there. Um, this is a topic. I just don't have to try that hard. The idea of waiting in life. One thing that unites all people all places, of all religions, at all times, is the fact that we wait. 
And I'm not just talking about the day in, day in, day in and day out waiting over the mundane things, right? That's definitely true too. Um, but the long-term waiting, the waiting for something that causes angst, that the waiting that can lead to a form of suffering, the, of something that is not happening that you want to start happening, or, or, or there's a, a long-term waiting of something that is happening that you want to stop happening, like being enslaved for the Israel people. The, the long-term waiting that causes angst, that's the kind of waiting we're talking about. And a question I often pose to the church, I'll often ask people, even just individuals, when I'm meeting with them, because it's an interesting question to ask is, hey, what are you waiting for right now? What's something you're waiting for? You, you know, some people, when they're asked that question, they immediately know the answer just based upon where their life is. It's specific, it's situational, it's relational. You know what you're waiting for. I even look around this room, and I just know many of your stories. I know what you're waiting for. But others, maybe even most people, it, it can be hard to articulate what you're waiting for. Like, there's probably an answer in there, but you really haven't taken the time to really dig for it. Um, maybe it's not situational. Maybe it's not something. Maybe it's, it's you're waiting for even yourself to be someone that you're not. But maybe you haven't identified in your own mind, in your own heart, the answer to that question, hey, what are you waiting for right now? Again, there's an individual waiting, but then in our passage this morning, there's a corporate kind of waiting. You have a people, an entire nation, waiting together to be freed from slavery. Um, you know, there's a reason why slaves in the 18th century and 19th century in this country identified so much with the book of Exodus. Um, identified so much with the Israelites in ways that I don't think we will ever fathom. In fact, there's an, a famous African-American spiritual called Go Down Moses, and, and it's a song, and, and really African-American generation to generation, they kind of keep the song alive because it harkens them back to their ancestors and the suffering that they occurred for them in this country, um, but it was a song written by slaves, and they saw themselves in the story of Exodus. In fact, Harriet Tubman one of the leading abolitionists who was active in the Underground Railroad said in an autobiography that she used the lyrics from Go Down Moses as a code song to help slaves escape and travel along the Underground Railroad. So I don't know that any of us will ever resonate with the waiting and suffering like maybe the Israelites did or that um, African Americans did in the times of slavery like Harriet Tubman but even so, we can easily identify with the reality of waiting, waiting in pain, waiting in a physical pain, waiting in emotional pain, waiting to be released from something or given something, and it's agonizing. The hardest, I don't think I'm even overstating, one of the hardest aspects of pastoral ministry is helping people wait well. Because I often, almost always, cannot control anything about their situation. But time spent waiting does not mean time spent wasted. We often think of waiting as a waste of time, but it doesn't have to be that way. So here are two truths that we just have to put together. God does not waste time. Amen? And God makes us wait. 
So you got to put those two together. And if you put those two together, what comes out? That there must be a purpose in waiting. Well, what can we hold on to in time of waiting? That's what we're desperate to know. Um, I can never tell you how long you're going to wait. I can never tell you the, you're going to get the outcome that you want in your waiting. But I can confidently, from God's word, edify us all with what we can hold on to in the midst of waiting. And this passage, the thesis of Exodus, gives us four things. Simple. We're going to be simple this morning. Four things that he rattles off that we can hold on to in times of waiting, that the nation of Israel could hold on to in times of waiting. Number one, God hears. God hears. And God heard their groaning. Um, I think one of the most overlooked aspects of God's power is that he hears everything. Like, like when we think of God's power, especially in Exodus, we think of big things, impressive things, powerful, loud, visible things. But the fact that God hears is at the intersection of his power and his presence, right? His omnipotence and his omnipresence. God hears the prayers of his people. And just that alone, like we're always just so quick to say, yeah, but give me more. But just sit there for a moment. Like how distinct does this make him from everything else in creation? Like we made in his image, you know what we do? We struggle to hear things, don't we? Like, maybe even most things. Like, there's audible hearing. There's miscommunication that occurs, right? That, like, like, what's that? I didn't hear you. Or, more often the case, we are so distracted all the time that we just don't actually hear the things that are being spoken right to us, right? So this happens to me all the time, um, where I am um, sitting and there's a kid talking to me and um, I'm on my phone. Okay? I know you're with me. Here's the thing. My wife knows when I'm on my phone when she's not even in the room. Because I have a tone in my voice when I'm talking to them that she knows I'm not paying attention to them. Right? So it's like, dad, dad, dad. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. And then from the other room, I'll hear, Aaron, get off your phone. (laughs) I'll be like, what the heck? How's she? Dang it. But it's true, like I'm hearing, but there's, I'm so distracted, I'm consumed on something else, I'm not paying attention to them. Or there's selective hearing, right? The, the I am choosing to not hear what I'm hearing. Okay, again, uh, I grew up in a house with four boys, and I had a mom who, when she called your name, you knew whether you should answer or not. Right? So, like, here was the strategy growing up. If, like, I hear from across the house, hey, Aaron, Aaron, I, I got to be strategic here. I'm going, if I don't say anything, she'll move on to the next brother. Because <laughs> that's a chore call. I know a chore call. And so you just got to play the odds. But, again, like, if she catches you, then you got to, like, back. To, but, like, that's just, like, that's selective hearing, right? As opposed to uh, Super Bowl Sunday, favorite uh, Super Bowl snack in the Stockton household, M&M's, right? My dad always brought home M&M's. And there is a very distinct sound of M&M's hitting a cereal bowl. <laughs> and if my dad came home with M&M's and poured that in, we could be anywhere in the house and we'd all just walk in like, did I just hear that? <laughs> Didn't even need to be summoned. You see, there's 
hearing, and then there's hearing. It's kind of the reason why Jesus would say, after he would tell a parable, hey, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. He's not talking about literal ears. He's going, there's a certain kind of hearing that we need you to hear. And I just think sometimes the most basic truths are the ones we need to be reminded of most in the Christian life. Church, God hears. Psalm 34, 4 to 5. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. He hears, and he hears even our groaning. It's an emotional distress signal, right? The Israelites were at a place where it was beyond words. It was beyond even being hard to articulate it. Um, I, I wonder if they thought that Pharaoh dying meant the, that the new regime would be the freedom of their people, that maybe this was their hope, and then they find out, no, it's actually kind of convenient to slave enslave an entire people. It's actually something people don't, with power, want to give up right away. Because they are fortifying cities from their enemies. This is kind of working out. They're dehumanized. Uh, we have control over them. Not going to change. And the realization that no end was in sight, verse 23, so they groaned. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God. This is groaning. This is suffering. This is waiting in angst. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, I think we're, we're even given more insight into what this means and looks like. Uh, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul recognizes uh, the objective reality that there is suffering in the world. And that we are in a world where suffering exists. In fact, he says the entire creation right now is waiting with eager longing. There's that word. It waits. It's subject to bondage. And then he writes this in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. You know what he just said? He said, we're Christians. We have the Spirit. But we're in a fallen world. And we groan. And he's not saying that's wrong. He's saying this is the reality of living in a fallen world. There is suffering. There is waiting. There is angst, even for those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And then he tells us how the Holy Spirit comes to our aid in our groaning. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for. No, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God is not bothered by the groaning of his people. He doesn't want us to get it together. Before coming to him. Come on, shape up. It's not that big of a deal. It's not how God responds. But God himself translates to himself by his spirit our groanings. Think about that one when you're laying in bed tonight. That God hears even the faintest groan. Because when we go to God in these difficult moments, it puts our faith on display. We groan because we know he hears. This is the difference between groaning and grumbling. Groaning is done in faith. Groaning expresses a faith and hope in God, where grumbling expresses a doubt in the goodness of God. 
I love how Martin Luther puts it. It was actually a commentary on the book of Galatians, but I saw this line. He said, quote, God is quick to catch the sigh of heart. You know how you're around somebody so much and you, uh, family or somebody at work, where even their wordless sounds you can, you can make sense of? Like, you even know what that means? They didn't even say anything. They just made a sound, just a sigh, just a groan, and you know exactly what it means. That's God over his people. He is quick to catch the sigh of heart. And he provides comfort in the groaning. He provides comfort in the grief, not despite it. Number one, God hears. Number two, God remembers. And God remembered his covenant. Just as God is a God who hears, God is a God who remembers. Um, So walk this path with me for a second. Um, Memory is a weird thing. Memory is a fascinating thing to think about. Why does God give you a memory? A evolutionist, a humanist would say that memory is this evolutionary process that creatures grow over time, that they grew over time, that they evolved to better strengthen them for survival in their, wherever they live. And that those who remember the past are better able to survive the future. But memory is a gift. It's a gift given us to us by God. Here's why you have a memory. It's given to you by God to remind you who God is and what God has done. Who God is, what God has done. It's the foundational purpose of your memory. And outside of that, in this fallen world, memory is kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? Like, it can be very good and it can be very bad based upon what you're remembering. There are things in my mind, like I'm sure there are things in your mind that you wish you could forget. An experience of abuse at some point. Something that you have done that brings you shame. Something that you have seen. Something that you have heard that you're like, man, why can't I just forget that? You just can't get it out of your mind. And then there are things that would terrify you if you forgot them, that you don't want to forget, memories that you want to hold on to, that you are afraid of forgetting. You you know, if I think about the disease of Alzheimer's or or dementia, it's not something I have personally experienced with a close family member, but I've spoken to many in this church who have or are currently walking that, and it sounds brutal. Brutal. And I have found myself wondering, I wonder what's harder, to go through it or to see a family member go through it? Of, of what would be like, more agonizing, and maybe it's not even worth having to compare the two, but, but, but actually forgetting those who are closest to you or being forgotten by somebody who's closest to you. That is agonizing which ought to make us cling to the truth of God's word all the more. Of all the things to cling to in times of waiting, we should cling to the fact that we have a God who remembers perfectly. He has never given a promise that he has not or will not fulfill. But waiting's tricky, isn't it? Like, can your mind start to play tricks on you when you're waiting for something? Like, we tend to forget God in the waiting, which is when we need to remember him most. Um, But as you read God's word, um, I want you to tell yourself this out loud. If you're taking notes, just write this. I'll say it slow. If he said it, 
he will do it. And since he will do it, we will trust it. There is nothing I find myself needing to tell myself, to preach to myself, because you know what they say, if you don't preach to yourself, you'll end up listening to yourself. If he said it, he will do it. And since he will do it, we will trust it. And specifically in the context of Exodus 2, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. You know, this morning, it's a good time to plug the class that Andy Steen began teaching this morning on biblical covenants. Although I apologize, I just saw there was 33 of you tucked into the library. My bad, all right? Misjudge that one, okay? We'll figure it out. But praise God that some people were there. And, and here's the thing about covenants. They are not just to build up knowledge in your life about the Bible. That they play a very real and applicational role in your Christian life today if you understand the covenants. That a covenant is a promise given by God to his people. That he will be their God and he will work for them. He will not forget them. That God is working God is sustaining. We sang it this morning. He's in the waiting. He's not silent. He's not removed from his people, even in the midst of their suffering, that his covenant is that he will deliver them. And it began with Abraham and moved to Isaac and to Jacob and to all their descendants within the nation of Israel that is currently enslaved in Egypt. But if he said it, he will do it. And since he will do it, we will trust it. God remembers Number three, God sees. And God saw the people of Israel. God hears, God remembers, and now God sees. And, and you might start to think, okay, this just feels like redundant. We get the point, right? Like, okay, what, why, why we just keep kind of belaboring this? But each word is very important because they all, while they're kind of conveying the same God, they kind of give you a different angle and a different perspective on who he is. Because last week we saw uh, in the passage that everything changed for Moses when he saw the plight of his people firsthand. He had heard about it. He knew they were enslaved. But then he goes out and he sees it and he killed the guy. Because when you see suffering, it changes everything. It's not just in your mind. It's not just something you're reading or hearing. You see it. Everything changes when you see it. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so I get a free pass on another football illustration, okay? It's almost over. The season's over. Bear with me. But this one actually does not shed the NFL in a good light. Do you guys remember the story of Ray Rice? If you don't, he was a running, running back in the NFL. He actually went to high school not far from here, I think right across the border in New York, and then ended up at Rutgers, uh, and then was a big-time NFL running back. And a story came out. And I don't know if it was, I think it was Atlantic City, but I think it was at a casino where he had gotten into an altercation in an elevator with his, either his fiance or his wife at the time. I can't remember the state of the relationship at the time. And it's something that we heard about. Ray Rice in a domestic violence altercation incident. And it got talked about for a little while, especially around here because he's a local guy. And Rice was like 
hand slapped by, like a little slap on the wrist by the team in the NFL. He might have been suspended or just, um, you know, told he you know, was benched like a quarter and a half. But it felt like, like it often does with these domestic violence events, that it's going to go away. But then a video got leaked. A video got leaked by somebody who kind of knew within the casino, and we all saw what happened in that elevator. It was the most violent punch that I think you can imagine seeing on video. It was difficult to watch. And then rightfully so, when that video came out, everything changed. All of a sudden, the commissioner banned him from football. All of a sudden, the team released him. Why? Nothing changed, but people saw it. And when you see it, it's different from hearing it. By the way, I think Ray Rice is still with his wife. I think they've reconciled and are repentant, and they've kind of used that as a platform to help others. But that aside, things come into focus when you see it. And this is why in the passage, in addition to hearing, in addition to remembering, the Holy Spirit inspires the passage and Moses in writing this to write, and God sees. He sees everything. And nothing is outside of his scope. He misses nothing and so every moment of your life is seen by God. In this world, there is no such thing as being alone. Every thought, every motive, every action, that is in 4K HD in the line sight of God. And I know, even just saying this, I know that part of you was like, wait, why is that good news? <laughs> like, wait, he sees everything? All my thoughts, like that is terrifying. Well, here's the comfort, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to Jesus in a little bit, but I'll just say this now. Here is the best news of the, best, of the good news, that on our worst day, the worst things you thought, the worst things you did, the worst things that you acted upon, that's the day that God looked down and said, I'll send my son to die for him, and I'll send my son to die for her. Not on our best day. The good news of the gospel is that we are fully known and fully loved. And we often think that's not possible. But in the gospel, it is. Um, but I think one of the deepest fears that people have, especially in 2020, is to be invisible to the world around them. To feel like nobody sees them. That they are not seen. And not talking about being physically seen, but that no one cares. No one understands. No one really understands what we're going through. Nobody really empathizes with our struggle. That we're not seen and the irony of 2020 is that we are more connected with the world than we ever have been. And yet, study after study after study comes out of how people feel more alone in life than they ever have. It's a scary place to feel like no one sees you. And it seems like this is getting to be a bigger and bigger problem amongst younger generations, the ones who are most connected. That all of life is happening around them, everybody else is seen, but not me. And that's a terrible feeling. And we need to cling to the truth that even in the darkest of times, God sees you. And us as a church, Grace Church, as the body of Christ, God's representative body in this world, we should be keen upon ensuring nobody in this congregation goes unseen. This is what Paul is addressing in the Philippians, which we saw last fall when he urged the church to look toward the interests of others, to carry one another's burdens, to verbally and physically affirm you see one another. 
that small gestures, small things, seemingly little ways to acknowledge somebody else's story shows a big heart for them and can go a long way. Especially those you consider brothers and sisters in Christ in your own church. I know I've talked about this before, but can I just cast the vision for us? What would it be like? Man, what would it be like if we were a body of believers who were known for their desire to come into this place with the thought on their mind, who is one person I can encourage today? That this is not a place where I'm just coming to consume a few songs, an awkward greeting time, a, a sermon, a prayer, a song, go home. And what if that wasn't what this whole thing was about? What if we were 300 people walking in each week asking God to give them an opportunity to see someone that morning? To speak life to them. To make eye contact and smile at them. To encourage them. To pray for them. What would that be like? I think we wouldn't be able to get here fast enough if we start seeing that happen more and more. That this would be a place of refuge. God is a God who sees. And then fourth, God knows. And God knew. This is the fourth and last promise the passage gives. And I think it's the most powerful because it stands out from all the other promises. Right? Because everything else had something after it. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw his people. And God knew. Period. Sometimes the most powerful things require the least amount of words. Sometimes we talk too much. And this passage just says, and God knew. One commentator said these three words are the most pregnant words in the Bible. It's pregnant with hope for God's people. That he sees his people, but he knows, right? Even when we see others, we can't totally understand everybody's perfect situation. We can't totally be in their shoes. We can try, but we will never fully know. But God knows. And the difference between knowing about someone's situation and knowing intimately points us to our relationship with God. God knows. He knows our deepest needs. He knows what we need most. And God knows about the slow drift into hopelessness that this fallen world can bring about. He knows the danger of losing hope. And with that intimate knowledge, he follows with action. And while they have been groaning, the people of Israel's cries have been going up. God has been active. He's been all the while preparing, ordaining, and leading a man named Moses in a foreign land to come upon them and be their deliverer. God knew. And this is what God does all throughout the Old Testament. He's actively, purposefully leading his people and everything points to the need for a savior. Everything points to the cross and to the empty tomb. That we today don't just look forward to what God will do, but we look back to what God has done. Right? The interesting parallel is that the people of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. And similarly, after the Old Testament, 400 years of silence come before a baby is born in Bethlehem. When the word became flesh. And what God knows is that what we need most is to know him. 
Knowing God is not the same as knowing about God. You can know about him. You can come here for a while and you can learn about God. You, you can learn God from a book. You can even learn God from the Bible. You can know about him. and what it's, what You can learn about a moral life. You can learn about having a relationship with him without ever knowing him personally. J.I. Packer, in his monumental book, Knowing God, in our library down the hall, he writes this. It will be a quote on the screen. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Church, do you know him? To know him is to have the eyes to see your need for a savior, to cry out for help. It's a decision made in space and time. To repent of sin and put your faith in him. Have you made that decision? Do you know him? This is not an area where we can afford to be vague. Because once you know him and are in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing, including the strength to wait well in the midst of a fallen world. So let me end with the question that we began with, what are you waiting for? What hurts are you carrying? What burdens are you carrying? What are you waiting for? In Christ, nothing is wasted. Nothing is pointless. That he's actively working in the world. He's actively working in you and your waiting, even when it appears that he's distant. One of John Piper's best quotes is that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you at any point might be aware of one or two of them. You can trust him with your waiting. You can encourage others in your life that they can trust God in their waiting. You can draw non-believers to Christ. You can show them Jesus and say this is the evidence that God is working. He sent his one and only son to die for you and you can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for simplicity at times in the scripture. We thank you for just a few verses, Lord, where we are reminded that you hear, that you remember, that you see, and that you know. Father, let us cling to these truths, Lord. Let our lives reflect our faith in them. Let our lives be a light to the world around us, Lord, so that others might see that you are the only true answer that will deliver, that you equip us to wait well, that you have acted in history to bring about salvation, and that you've invited all of us to play a part. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.